23. Follow along with me if you would, please. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? He said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon. I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? And David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your servant, your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. David has a true friend in Jonathan, doesn't he? In a moment of great adversity, David knows that he can come to his friend, to his brother, 
And that in that friendship, as Proverbs 17, 17 says, he finds not just a fair weather friend who is out there to hang out and to party when things are good, but he finds a friend who loves at all times. He finds a brother who was born for adversity. Such is the friendship of Jonathan and David. Jonathan had already committed himself in chapter 18, if you remember. He's committed himself in friendship to David. He gave away his armor and his weapons to him, signifying his friendship and signifying loyalty and submission more than he even knew, because at that point he probably had no idea that David would be the next king. But now Jonathan will prove the depths of that friendship. It will go beyond a gesture. And as we'll see, especially next week, Jonathan will put his own life on the line for David, his friend. Our title this morning is A Friend in the Valley of Death. And that's, in one sense, an attempt for me at trying to combine this beautiful language of David in verse 3 when he's explaining what's going on to Jonathan and he says, there is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan is there as a friend in that valley. Well, for us this morning as the church and as we consider what friendship looks like for us who walk in the faith together, I'd like to implore you to consider what gospel friendship is as we look at this story. And we'll consider that in three different headings. First, we'll talk about the need for gospel friendship, the qualities of gospel friendship, and then how we might pursue gospel friendship. You'll see that in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. But what is gospel friendship? It would be a friendship that finds its common ground in Christ and the good news of his life, his death, and resurrection. Friendship is all about common ground, isn't it? You make friends in different areas of life because of shared interests, because of shared goals, because you work together, because you live close to each other, whatever it might be, there's always some common ground. And so gospel friendship then is that which finds its common ground in Christ. And those who share gospel friendship live in the pursuit of Christ's character in themselves and the glory of Christ in every aspect of their lives. And I'm pulling this from David and Jonathan. Now, of course, David and Jonathan don't know yet the story of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, right? But the overarching gospel themes in this are very important. So especially as we come to the qualities of gospel friendship, I'd implore you to take note of Jonathan's friendship to David. David needs gospel friendship as he is again but a step away from death. Those who share gospel friendship share that together in whatever circumstance they find themselves. Again, as Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Friendship is not meant to simply be that friendship which we enjoy when times are good, but true and abiding and lasting. Those friendships that we hold so dear are with those people who stayed with us when we were a step away from death. So let's talk about the need for gospel friendship as we come to the beginning of our story today. And my first question as I consider what David's doing here is, why did he leave Naoth and Ramah? Do you remember last week? Do you remember what happened? We we left David and Saul in Ramah with Samuel 
David having found a refuge in God as God overtakes the senses of Saul and leaves him on the ground naked prophesying the praises of God and the wrongdoing of his own heart. We don't know the content. But Saul has been wrangled in and David has been secured. Saul has found the fruit of his isolation because of his indulgence in his sin and his keeping sin in his heart over and over again. His obsession with killing David has left him on the ground humiliated. But David is safe. Why did he leave is my question. Where one thing happens to Saul, the opposite is happening to David. God became more and more of a refuge for David in chapter 19. Why didn't David stay in that refuge? Well, I think he's returning to Gabeah at this point because he has a duty to the throne. You remember, he is not only the shepherd boy turned minstrel that we first saw him as, as he first interacted with Saul, but then he has become the hero of Israel in defeating the Philistine. From that, he became a commander in Israel's armies. And then lastly, he became the son-in-law of the king. Church, this morning, don't miss that in David's heart, his main, his main goal is to fulfill what God has called him to do, even though he knows he is a step away from death. He is intent on obeying the Lord no matter the cost, even though we see great fear in David's words this morning. He returns to the throne, even though the one who sits on the throne has time and time again tried to take his life. He clearly has some reservations, though, doesn't he? He doesn't go straight to the throne. He doesn't come back to Saul and say, hey, Saul, I'm clocking in. What would you like me to do today? Soothe your wearied spirit from the evil spirit? Lead your armies? Marry your daughter? What else can I do for you? He doesn't just come straight into the throne room. He goes to Jonathan. He goes to the son of the king. When we are unsure about how we can continue faithfully before the Lord, we must go to our friends. Do you have friends in your life that you can go to in a time where you say, I know what the Lord's called me to, but there's a massive obstacle in the way. What do I do? Will you help me? Fairweather friends cannot do that, can they? Those friends that are there to be the partiers, to watch the game, to enjoy the levity of life, those things aren't bad. But Jonathan and David share something far greater Jonathan apparently didn't know what happened after his father swore an oath not to harm David. Do you remember in chapter 19, Jonathan has already talked to Saul and he said, hey, don't sin against the Lord. Don't sin against innocent David here. Do the right thing, father. He's been nothing but good for you. And at the time, Saul seems ready to say, okay, I won't do it. I'll stop. You're right, son. I believe you. But we know how the rest of chapter 19 went. I mean, it wasn't but a moment. It wasn't but a few verses before we saw Saul again throwing spears at David, chasing him all the way to his house, chasing him all the way to Ramah. Jonathan missed all of this. I don't know how he did, but apparently he did. So David needs to update him a bit on what happened in chapter 19 
Again, very poetically, David says to him, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. We wouldn't expect anything less from the sweet psalmist of Israel, would we? David may be considered by some to be something of a drama queen. You could even hear Saul saying that perhaps to Jonathan in a later conversation. Come on, that David, let's stop listening to him. This is the reality of what he faces. His great need is for a true friend, for a friend in the good news of the God he loves and serves. So we see Jonathan's commitment to him in verse 4. Jonathan's ready to do whatever he can to help David. What a friend Jonathan is. Do you have a friend like Jonathan? You know that old phrase, a friend in need is a friend indeed? Kind of spent a little part of this last week trying to figure out what that exactly means. I did some research and it seems like nobody really knows what it means. But it rhymes, so it sounds smart, sounds helpful, let's think about it. I think that when we say a friend in need is a friend indeed, means that that person who we consider a friend, who stays with us when we are in need, is a friend indeed. It's the test of friendship when you're in the valley of death, when you are a step away from it. Who remains when you're in that kind of environment? Are you alone? Or do you have a friend indeed? Jonathan is a friend indeed. So David outlines a plan for Jonathan to find out about Saul. We'll see next week how this plan plays out. It revolves around the new moon, which would be just a time of special feasting and worshiping. And David's plan is for Jonathan to find out what Saul's real intentions are. In part because David wants to know. He wants to know if he can come back to his old job. He's giving Saul, I don't know, an 80th chance here, right? Also, Jonathan, I mean, he's convinced. Jonathan's like, I heard my dad swear an oath. I'm taking him seriously on that. And David says, look, you're going to have to see for yourself. So he sets up this plan. I'm not going to show up. Saul's going to ask where I am. You're going to say, I had to go back home, and you let me go. And if he is okay with that, then let me know, and I will come back, and everything will come back to normal, and we'll all be one big happy family. But if he's angry, then you'll know that Saul saw the new moon festival as an opportunity for him to throw yet another spear at David. Jonathan will tell Saul that David's back home in Bethlehem, and that will reveal Saul's intentions. And then David, after outlining this plan, he expresses submission to Jonathan in verse 8. His loyalty to Jonathan still exists. You know, even though his own father-in-law, Jonathan's father, has tried to kill him this many times, he says, deal kindly with your servant. He calls himself Jonathan's servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to, my, to your father? He says, look, if I have done something wrong, let me know and I'll take the punishment, even if the punishment should be death. In his time of need, David humbles himself before his friend. And this is part of our need in gospel friendship as well, church. We need a friendship where we're able to genuinely ask someone if we've done anything wrong in whatever situation we find ourselves. We need not only to ask ourselves this, but at times we do need to ask others. 
This is something that we might skip over in conflict. We might say, hey, this person has clearly and obviously offended me. They're in the wrong, and nothing's going to be made right until they do something about it. David, in his humility, says, look, if I have earned the disfavor of the king, let me know. I will make it right. I'll take whatever punishment it is. David's example in this is so important to us. Because more often than we like to admit or even think too much about, conflicts that we face are often a two-way street. We might even be like David, and I think David's pretty sure here that he's done nothing wrong. But he still says to Jonathan, hey, do you see anything in my life that's bringing this on? Is there a sin that has snuck past my radar? Have I acted wrong in any of this? Jonathan responds with comforting him. He saw David's need, and he reassured him that he was on his side, and that from his perspective, David had done nothing wrong, that, that clearly this has been an issue that Saul has with him, and not necessarily a two-way street. So Jonathan comforts him. He takes him aside. He says, hey, we, we were going to talk more about this big deal that's going on, but let's go out to the field. Now, now this is perhaps two things we should note here about Jonathan's sort of change of scenery here. In one sense, you might say, okay, well, maybe he's moving away because they're about to talk about the secret plan a little bit more. They're already talking about the secret plan. It may be that maybe somebody walked past at this moment, and he said, hey, somebody might hear us. Let's, let's go somewhere private so we can talk more freely about this. But one commentator actually led me to think more about this, that, that Jonathan may be recognizing that David actually just needs a change of scenery for a moment. Not as though he can just say, hey, let's just forget about all this Saul stuff and not do anything about it. But he may be seeing that in his friend's heart, he needs to kind of hit reset a little bit and switch things around a little bit. Change the tone of the conversation, perhaps. He wants to reassure his friend as best as he can that he's on his side, that he'll do whatever he can. Do you have a friend like Jonathan? David's a step away from death, but he's not alone. Jonathan is with him. He's able to be the friend that David needs him to be. Do you see your need for friendship today? Let's look at the four qualities of this kind of friendship that we see in Jonathan here in verses 12 through 23. First, Jonathan commits his plan and his will to the Lord for David's encouragement. In verse 12, he calls the Lord, the God of Israel, to be witness. So this is somewhat ambiguous in the Hebrew here, in that he could just simply be saying, the Lord be witness, here's what I'm about to say. Most likely that's what's going on. But something in the language here kind of leaves it open that he might even be saying this almost as a prayer in one sense. He's, he is not just calling on the Lord, like, like separate from the Lord, but he's speaking to God here as well. He's infusing prayer into the ministry that he's giving to his friend. He calls on the Lord to be witness that he's going to inform David of Saul's intentions, whether good or evil, that, that he's serious about this. That it's, not going to, it's going to be on the top of his to-do list in the days ahead. And of course, the Lord who sees all things will be the one Jonathan looks to to see the task done. Jonathan's confident of his desire and ability to help his friend. But he's really putting his trust in the Lord's desire and ability to help his friend David. Jonathan has seen what the Lord has done when a person's heart is submitted to him, surrendered to his will and not to his own. It's such a great reminder. It gives such a great reminder to David and to us in this. 
In verse 13, Jonathan says something very interesting. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Now, he's seen the evidence of God's presence in David's life. And at this point, David has probably told him about being anointed for the kingship. What Samuel said, you're going to be the next one. You're the one that God has chosen according to his own choosing. It's you, David. It's not going to be Jonathan. Part of Jonathan's friendship with David is this humility that says what I think perhaps or what the world around or especially what my father thinks as we'll see in the latter part of this chapter is supposed to be mine. I'm giving it to you. Let the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. Not just in the sense that God is present everywhere, but the special anointing, the special presence of the Holy Spirit with the king of Israel. Let that be with you, David. He's not claiming it for himself. Do you have a friend like Jonathan? A friend who's willing to set aside his own privileges and and his own perhaps perceived privileges to give you grace? Jonathan commits his plan and the will to the Lord for David's encouragement. Secondly, but four things, by the way, I didn't tell you that. Four qualities that we see in Jonathan. Secondly, Jonathan trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord through David and to David, verse 14 and 15. He appeals to love knowing that the Lord abounds in steadfast love. I'd remind you of the faith of Jonathan a few chapters back when he knew there was a garrison of the Philistines on the other side of the hill. He goes to his armor bearer and he says, hey, the Lord's able to save with few or with many. Why don't we go and see what happens? We could trust in him and whatever God wants to do, that's what will happen. Jonathan trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord. He appeals to that. And he then uses that as a reminder to David. Even though his request is is in the context of saying, hey, would you keep me and my family in alliance with you? You know, in Old Testament times and throughout much of history, if there was a dynastic change, that is, if one person was king and then another person came in, he wasn't the next heir, he wasn't the son or the nephew or anything, if that change was taking place, the expectation was, was that the whole family of Saul would be killed. Jonathan says, by the steadfast love of the Lord, through you, would you preserve me? Would you keep me in alliance with you? And remember, Jonathan, again, this will be something we see more in the next part of the chapter too. Jonathan is so less concerned about himself. He's so much more concerned about David. He wants to be there to be a part of what God's going to do in David's life. And in a moment where David thought he was a step away from death, Jonathan's going, the Lord's going to be with you. He has been with you. He's going to bring you to the thing that he said he would bring you to. It's going to happen. He trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord through David and to David, and I would add for David. You know, David's expression of being a step away from death is probably not one that is made with the love of God in full view. If David is truly afraid of Saul killing him, he needs a reminder of God's steadfast love, and that is what Jonathan provides for him. Thirdly, Jonathan trusts in the victory of the Lord over David's enemies. Did you catch that? Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David, from the face of the earth. I don't know if you've ever had a friend who said, the Lord's going to cut off all your enemies from the face of the earth. Might be a little weird. Might be a little extreme. 
I'm just having a slight conflict with this person. I'm not looking for their death. We apply these verses. We need to keep in view the context of David, the context of us. But for David, he's going to face a lot of enemies. And, and Jonathan is foreshadowing that with this. There's going to be enemies to the throne. And, and in David's context as the king, uh, his enemies are going to come against him and say, either kill me or let me rule. And he's going to say, I'm going to trust the Lord on this. Do we trust in the Lord? Do we trust in the victory of the greater David over all of our conflict, over our enemies of sin, Satan, and the world, the things that are coming against us, our own flesh, most importantly? Jonathan trusts in the victory of the Lord over David's enemies. At a time where David is stuck in his moment of there's a step between me and death, Jonathan comes in and says, look forward, look into the future. See this, the Lord has promised he will hold to his promises for you. Do you have a friend like Jonathan? Jonathan then, in verses 18 through 22, he carefully plans out. He rehashes what David says, and he says, okay, I get it. Let's move forward with this plan. And then lastly, in verse 23, Jonathan appeals to the sovereign rule of God in David's life. Look down, if you will, at verse 23. His last words to him in this section as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, that is the covenant that they made, their friendship, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. I've said it a few times. David's line in verse three, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan ends his encouragement to David by saying, there may be a step between you and death, but between you and me is the Lord. I mean, that's just kind of beautiful, isn't it, right? <laughs> the way he wraps this up. David is afraid. And Jonathan says, it may be true that there's merely a step between you and death, but between you and me is the Lord. Do you remember that definition in chapter 17 of the term champion? That it literally translates as the one of the between. That the Philistine, Goliath. You remember, kids, the Philistine? That massive threat to Israel's army. He was the one who stood in between the mountain where Israel's army stood and the mountain where the armies of the Philistines stood. And David was the one who met him in the between and defeated him on behalf of Israel. Now this, the mighty David, is a step between him and death and someone else must come in between for him. So appears Jonathan, his friend and he doesn't just simply say, don't worry, David, I'm here. You got me. We can take out Saul. He, it's not at all his tone. Between you and death, there's but one step. But between you and me, there's the Lord. That is encouragement. That is the friendship that we need. That is gospel friendship that returns to the truth of what God has clearly said and communicates it in the context where we need it the most. David's in the valley, but he's not alone. Do you have a friend like Jonathan? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So I've asked you eight times if you have a friend like Jonathan. Hopefully you're sick of it and you got the point. Maybe you do or maybe not. I think we can all say that especially once we kind of grew up, friendships have been hard to maintain. 
And if gospel friendships have these qualities that we saw in this chapter, and even more, then what we've accomplished thus far is simply to say friendship, as we see it in Scripture, is even harder to maintain than your old high school buddies or college friendships. It's even harder because it has these heavy qualities about them. It may be that this morning, thinking about this, I feel that I don't have time for gospel friendships, that I don't have the capacity for gospel friendships. Maybe I don't even have a desire for gospel friendships. It may be that something of a worldly view has so affected my heart that I say, it's me and me against the world. And when I'm a step between me and death, you better watch out, death. The Bible does not give us room to think that we can make it through life on our own. This isn't to say that we need to be best friends with everyone who sits with us in the paint chairs on Sunday morning. But if Christ is the foundation of our lives, if he is the common ground that brings us together on Sunday mornings to worship, on Tuesday nights to pray, on Friday nights, Friday mornings for a Bible study, or whatever context, if Christ is that common ground, if he is the foundation of our lives individually, he should be the foundation of our lives corporately, our lives together, as the body of Christ, united by his spirit. Because between you and me and the person sitting next to you and the person behind you and the person ahead of you, if we're in Christ, the Lord is between us forever. Our job as fellow believers is to remind each other of the gospel of Jesus. Are you building gospel friendships with other believers today? Do you have a friend like Jonathan? Now, gospel friendships are not merely an optional add-on for faithful Christian living. It's not the platinum package. You know, if you say, like, there's, hey, there's the bronze, that's kind of like me just doing my own spiritual thing on my own for a while. I'm good with that. It's not an option. When you are baptized into Christ by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, when you are a part of Christ, you are by necessity a part of the entire body of Christ. You are united not only with Jesus but with everyone who is also united in Christ. And again, I would say it's not merely an option for us to add on. We cannot walk in greater and deepening obedience to Christ without gospel friendships. We can't grow if we don't have gospel friendships. And I mean that one. Church, hear me out in this, that I've known, I've known so many people, I'm not trying to say that, but there have been people that I've come across in life who have, for all intents and purposes, abandoned the church because no church is going to do what they want it to do or that they've been hurt so bad that there's no place for them to go and they've, they've just abandoned all hope for corporate worship and they've bought into the individualism of America in their spiritual lives And they've basically said, I'm just going to grow on my own. I'm going to do this by myself. I'm going to become really spiritual. You cannot do that. The monastic lifestyle is not the holiest of lifestyles to say, I'm going to just go live out in the woods as a hermit and live a holy life where I never sin ever again. It's already starting off in a place of sin because you are rejecting the great gift that God has given you in the church. 
And yeah, that great gift is rough sometimes, isn't it? Because, yeah, there's people who have had such bad church hurt that they never want to set foot again in a church building, but we all have church hurt to some degree, don't we? Because we let each other down. I may have let you down in the last four years, so I'm sorry if I did. That's the reality. If I haven't let you down yet, I'm probably going to. Might even just try to by the end of the sermon to prove my point. Just kidding, I won't do that. We will let ourselves down. We will be disappointed by being a part of the body of Christ. But that is by design, church. Because we are all in need of Christ. And part of that gospel friendship that we don't see explicitly or beautifully in Jonathan and David's conversation here is the part where we come in as broken, messed up sinners. And we have to share that part too. But we're not going to get to share the good parts or the good qualities of gospel friendship unless we accept each other in the gospel the way we've been accepted in Christ. This is hard to prioritize, but we must prioritize it. Why? Well, I'll give you just the top answer. It's because Jesus prioritized friendship. John 15, 15. I'm giving you some great Bible memory verses, by the way. Proverbs 17, 17, and now John 15, 15. No longer, Jesus says, do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Don't you hear almost a strange echo of Jonathan's words in this? Jonathan, who says, whatever my Father says, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to let you in on his plan. I'm going to protect you. Here the opposite is happening, though, because Jesus says, I have told you everything I've heard from my Father, and it's all amazing. It's all grace. It's all forgiveness and mercy and kindness. It is the goodness of God that Jesus discloses to us in our friendship with him. It is the forgiveness of our sins. Christ's intention in friendship with sinners is to restore us to God, not only as servants, which we are, are barely worthy of, right? We're like that prodigal son who says, I, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But Jesus restores us as friends because he is the beloved son of God. And in him, we have a friend who was perfectly committed to the father's plan and calls us to commit ourselves to him. We have a friend who trusts in the steadfast love of God and pours that love out on our lives moment by moment. We have a friend in Christ who not only trusts in the promises of the Lord's victory for us, but accomplishes them perfectly for us at the cross. Because he's banished the power of sin from the lives of all who trust in him. We have a friend in Christ who is the sovereign ruler over everything. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he calls us to trust in him as our friend, even a step away from death. This is our friend, church. The Lord Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, the one who reached down to the lowly, who was but a step away from eternal death. That's all of us. If you know him today, you know him as your friend, for there is no other way to know him. You cannot be redeemed by Christ and not be his friend. It comes with it. A friend who loves at all times. An older brother born into this world to face our adversity on our behalf. 
to take the full weight of our sin, to bear with us in our troubles, to offer his presence with us so we can say, whatever we face, we do not face it alone. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and he has never forsaken me. Maybe today we need to turn away from the parts of our life that we treat as a solo mission because we have Christ, and in Christ, we have each other. So how do we pursue gospel friendships? Maybe here our question turns from, do you have a friend like Jonathan, to are you a friend like Jonathan? So yeah, it got worse, right? It might have been hard enough for some of us to think, I don't really know if I have that kind of friendship. But then to go to the next level and say, am I that kind of friend? Has Christ made me that for others? Better yet, are we a friend like Jesus? It's an impossible standard, of course, except his spirit resides in us. And he is changing us to be more into the character of Christ. If Christ calls us to this kind of friendship today, he's going to give us what we need to make it happen. And if Christ has won us to friendship with him at the cost of his own life, is there anything he can't ask of us insofar as we say, we must be friends in the gospel with each other? I read C.S. Lewis this last week. If you've ever read The Four Loves, I recommend it to you. If you haven't, at least the last fourth that I read, you might like to read it in order. But C.S. Lewis says this. I thought this was helpful. In friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, posting to different regimes, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at first meeting. Any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances a secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. It's Christ who gives us the friends that we have. So pursue gospel friendships, church begin at the starting point of the sovereign orchestration of the Lord in your life. Even as we talk with each other after the service today, pursue gospel friendships. And pursue it with the same grace we received in Christ. We were not chosen because we were worthy. May we, not, may we then trust the Lord that among the brothers and sisters he's placed around us are the ones with whom we must pursue gospel friendships.